Well, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Our text for today is Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. And the title for this message is Remembering Christ's Work of Reconciliation. Remembering Christ's Work of Reconciliation. Most of us have heard dramatic testimonies. Maybe we've heard or known someone who was some combination of a a drug addict, an alcoholic, swore like a savior, utterly lost in their depravity, maybe even neck deep in some false religion. And then all of a sudden, they were confronted with the gospel, and the Lord Jesus Christ became real to them. And he utterly transformed them and caused them to walk in a total new way of life in an instant. Those are compelling stories, aren't they? Especially for those of us who grew up in the church and maybe have what, humanly speaking, would be a tame testimony. But there is one testimony that is the most dramatic in all of history, and that is how the Christ-hating, church-persecuting Pharisee named Saul became the Christ-loving, gospel-proclaiming, church-planting Apostle Paul, who ended up writing half of the New Testament. In a couple of weeks, Pastor Leake will be picking up in Acts 9, which is the conversion of the Apostle Paul, but here's the quick version. He was on his way to Damascus with the intention of finding and arresting Christians. He knew the gospel, and he hated it. He knew about this man, Jesus Christ, and he hated him. He knew what Christians taught and believed, and he hated all of it. And his hatred was so intense that he made it his life's mission to destroy Christianity. And yet, as he approached Damascus at about noon when the Middle Eastern sun was at its brightest, A light brighter than the sun shone on him, and the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to him. And in an instant, all of that hatred for Christ and the gospel and and the church dissipated and went away. And the rest, as they say, is history. Well, this experience was so powerful that for the rest of Paul's life, it compelled him, sustained him, and empowered him to live for Christ through all of the difficulties and trials that he faced. There are probably few of us here who would say, well, I wasn't killing Christians and trying to stamp out the church, but really, that sounds a lot like my testimony. But the truth is, no matter how you would describe your salvation story, In its most vital details, Paul's testimony, in its most vital details, is an illustration of Christ's work in your own life. And it's my aim this morning to remind you of the very realities that make your testimony if you have put your faith in Christ, just like Paul's. In Colossians 1, 21 to 23, we find three defining realities of your life that you must remember to persevere in the faith. Three defining realities of your life that you must remember to persevere in the faith. Let's read the text and then we will 
work at remembering these realities. Paul writes this, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you holy before him, holy and blameless and above reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Three defining realities of your life. Consider the first reality. Remember the necessity, remember the necessity of Christ's work of reconciliation. Look at verse 21. He writes, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. In the Bible, we have something that we cannot get through any other source of truth, namely the anatomy of the soul. Doctors, medical experts can tell us about the anatomy of the body, its parts, its functions, its abilities, its limitations. But Scripture gives us the anatomy of the soul, that is, your nature, the the immaterial part that makes you who you really are. Apart from the Bible, no one can tell you about your nature, why you say what you say, why you do what you do, why you think what you think, really who you really are. No one has any way of knowing the essential nature and the working mechanisms of humanity. But our Creator does. And thankfully, the Bible is replete with God telling us things about ourselves that we couldn't know in any other way. And that's really what we have here, a brief but exhaustive explanation of the nature of every human being that has ever been born apart from Christ. In fact, everything you need to understand about humanity after the fall is presented right here in summary form. Paul reminds us of our need for reconciliation with God by describing the fallen human condition in three categories. The first category is our relationship to God. The second category is our nature. And the third category is our behavior. And each of these three conditions demonstrate why we need Christ's work of reconciliation. So consider first your relationship with God. You can see it there. It says you were formerly alienated. All humanity, apart from Christ's work of reconciliation, is alienated from God. This simply means that you had no relationship with God, no positive relationship with God. You were estranged from Him. You had no interest in Him. You didn't seek for Him and care to know Him. If Perhaps you cried out to him in some moment of distress, as many unbelievers do. It's not because you cared about him. It's because you wanted to use him to get you out of your situation. Though God created Adam and Eve and had a close personal relationship with them, they sinned in that they rejected God's command, disbelieved his promise, and sided with the one who had maligned the character of God. And because they chose to turn away from God, the Lord kept his promise and turned them away from the tree of life in a relationship with him. We call that the fall, when humanity rejected God and fell headlong into a state of rebellion against him. 
in time, God set apart a people for himself whom he would have a close relationship with. He was to be Israel's God, and they were to be his people. But they too eventually rejected him, and like Adam and Eve, they rejected the promises of God and preferred to drink the poison cup of idolatry. So God gave them over to their sin and rebellion as well. In Ephesians, the sister letter to Colossians, Paul described the Gentiles' alienation from God this way, remember that you were at that time before Christ, separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In Romans, Paul says of all humanity, there is none who seeks God, all have turned aside. But it's worse than this because it's not like you and I were living in some far off country and all we need to do was pack our bags and move closer to God. Look at the second description here in verse 21. You were hostile in mind. This refers to your purposes, your impulses, your disposition. Biblically, the mind is synonymous with the heart as a reference to who you really are on the inside. You, you think what you think because that is who you are. So we're talking about the core of our nature when we talk about the mind and the heart. And here Paul says we were hostile in mind. We hated God. We were his self-declared enemies. But why? Why would we declare ourselves enemies of God? Why would we rebel against our creator? Well, it's because of the other elements of our nature that Scripture tells us about. Again, this is just a summary form. So consider the descriptions of hostile humanity that we see in other places of the New Testament. First, apart from God's grace, you were dead in your sins. You were spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 begins, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Mankind is born into this world spiritually dead. It means we can't hear God's voice. We can't taste the goodness of God. We can't feel the sweet aroma, uh, excuse me, the, the fresh air of his presence or feel the warmth of his light. We could do nothing to sense or respond to spiritual stimulus. You and I were spiritually dead. Second, humanity, apart from God's grace, has a calloused and hardened heart. Ephesians 4.18 says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. By the practice of sin, we've seared our conscience and hardened ourselves against the law of God that is written on the heart. So we're spiritually dead, we're callous. Third, apart from God's grace, we were spiritually blind and loved the darkness. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus said in John 3.19 that light has come into the world and men loved darkness for their, rather than the light, for their e- deeds were evil. We were not only blind, but like creatures of the light, we hated the light. We ran from the light. And then fourth, we were slaves to sin apart from God's grace. 
To Titus, Paul wrote, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Because we were dead, hard-hearted, blind lovers of darkness, we were enslaved to those desires that rose out of our heart. We would do nothing else other than sin because we could do nothing else. We were bound to the desires of the sinful flesh. If you are a Christian... You were spiritually dead, hard-hearted, blind. You loved the darkness and you were enslaved to sin. That was your nature. If you're not a Christian, that is your nature. How do we know this is true? Well, because of what the next description says. It's revealed in our behavior. You see it there in verse 21. First, you're alienated. Second, we're hostile in mind. Third, We're engaged, we were engaged in evil deeds. In the original, the evil deeds are a manifestation of that hostile mind. One translation puts it well this way, you were enemies in your mind as expressed through your evil deeds. Again, Ephesians 2, Paul writes, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all once formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In Romans 3, Paul quotes various psalms to describe Jews and Gentiles alike, all humanity, saying, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Apart from Christ's work of reconciliation in a person's life, this is the nature and the behavior of humanity. Just as a side note, this is why we don't teach a doctrine of free will the only, the, excuse me, the unbeliever's will is only free to roam within the confines of the sinful nature. It is not free, that is, it does not have the capacity or the desire to emancipate itself from the slave master of sin. God alone is capable and must rescue us despite ourselves if we are going to be free from sin. Now, you might hear these descriptions and be thinking, well, I was no saint, but good night, I was not that bad. You might even think, I grew up in the church, I was never hostile to God. In fact, I was was a pretty good person. How could God describe me that way? We all likely know unbelievers who are downright decent, good, and kind people. Neighbors, friends, relatives. So how can these things be true of all people? Well, here's one way to think about that. The fact that we are made in God's image combined with our experience of common grace means that no one is as evil as they could be. And most, if not even all, are far from it. Our sinfulness is restrained by many factors, our upbringing, our cultural sensibilities, Uh, opportunities to sin and other things. 
But, but even still, as soon as we begin to think, I wasn't that bad, or surely that doesn't describe my friendly neighbor, we begin to downplay the significance of living life apart from God. And we deny the seriousness of sin. Such that when someone says, how can bad things happen to good people? That's, that's like a conundrum to us. Yeah, there, there are a lot of good people. And what's, what's going on? Well, here's why even the best of unbelievers is wicked in God's eyes. God made us to glorify him. He made our bodies not just so that we would live, but so that we would live for him. He he made our mouths so that we would speak and sing his praises. He made our minds so that we would know him. He made our hands and our feet and our muscles so that we would work for him. He gave us marriage so that we would represent and illustrate Christ's relationship with the church. He gave us children so that we might present to th- uh, represent to them the, the good father that God is and so that we would teach him about the one true and living God. In short, we belong to God and we were made for his glory. Is that how we lived before God saved us? Is that how we understood life in reality apart from God's saving grace? No, we determined that we were made to be happy as we define happiness and to get the the most out of life that we want to get out of it. We we thought that our bodies were meant to work for our pleasure and and get out, out of life the things that we desire, accomplish our own purposes. We exerted ourselves to work toward our own goals and desires We breathed God's air as if it were owed to us. We spoke with our tongues to get our own way and to lash out if someone got in our way. We sang songs that exalted life apart from God. With our minds, we suppressed the knowledge of the one true and living God. With our eyes, we saw God's creation and wondered how chance could cause all this to be. We used our spouse as a tool for our own pleasure, and when we got tired of them, just got rid of them. We taught our children what we thought they needed to know, and we hoped we taught them enough reason and logic to not be deceived by religious fanatics. We breathed God's air. We walked on God's earth. We used the bodies God gave to us and the people God put around us, and through it all, we didn't give any thanksgiving or praise or any thought to God. And the tragedy is many of us did this knowing that God existed and maybe even having heard the gospel. But we rejected him and thought we could do better for ourselves than to submit to him. That is the very definition of hostile rebellion against God. That is what it means to be alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Do you, do you see how desperately you and I needed Christ to reconcile us? Friend, if you're not a Christian, no matter how good you think you are, do you see how desperately you need the forgiveness of Christ? How you are living apart from his grace and in rebellion against what he has called you to do. Paul never lost sight of his former life. In fact, he refused to forget it. 
Because remembering our past magnifies the grace of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm not good because of my own efforts. It's God's grace that has transformed me. And we're no different than Paul. We may not have persecuted the church like Paul did, but apart from the grace of Christ, our heart was in no better position than his than to receive and believe the gospel. And like him, we must remember the necessity of Christ's work of reconciliation so that his grace would be magnified in our lives. So remember Remember that you are hostile in mind, alienated from God, engaged in evil deeds. Remember the necessity of Christ's work of reconciliation in your life. Secondly, remember the act of Christ's work of reconciliation, the act of Christ's work. Look at verse 22, the first part. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. The personal pronoun he there is obviously a reference to Christ, but consider what Paul wants us to know about this Christ, to understand the magnitude of what he's done. Look back at verse 13 there of chapter 1. He says, for he, referring to the Father, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So the Lord Jesus has a kingdom into which we have been transferred. Jesus is a king of a kingdom. Do you realize what that means? Though we were alienated and hostile, he came and died to reconcile us. Though we were hostile to his kingdom, he came and died to reconcile us. Though we were committing track, acts of treachery and felonies, he came and died to reconcile us. But that's just beginning. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is to say, the Lord Jesus Christ manifests to us what God is like. God is spirit and Jesus is God in the flesh. And as such, he is preeminent overall creation. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. The Lord Jesus Christ is not just a king of some far-off country who died for you. He is God. He is overall creation because he created all things. He is to be worshiped and praised and glorified, and yet he took upon himself a body and endured life on this sin-cursed planet to reconcile us to himself. But there's more. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. Well, he could have just as easily said, before everything was, I am. Of course, he made all things. And not only did he make all things, but he sustains all things. By the word of his power, Hebrews says, Christ upholds all things. 
Jesus is the great I am, the sovereign God over all things who created all things and sustains all things. Yet, he traveled that infinite distance from heaven to earth, took upon himself a body, subjected himself to life in this sin-cursed world, and endured the cross in his flesh, shedding his blood for you and me, paying the penalty that we deserve so that we might be reconciled to him. Why? Why would he do this? He was obviously no, under no obligation to do anything but rain down judgment on all people. His holiness and his righteousness and his justice demanded nothing but for him to send us all to hell because we were his enemies. But no, he chose to come down and die to reconcile us to himself. Why? Well, that's the third point. Remember the purpose of Christ's work of reconciliation. So remember the need, the act, and the purpose of Christ's work of reconciliation. Look again at your Bible at verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Christ's work of reconciliation is intended to reverse everything that was true about us. In fact, he has begun such a work of transformation that once it is complete, what had been true of us would hardly be believable had the Lord not told us. Notice the phrase, in order to present you before him. The word present means to bestow Uh, to award or to offer. It can be presenting oneself to a master. It can be presenting a child in dedication to the Lord. But what it means here is to present a bride to her groom, to give her as a gift, as it were, to be loved and cherished. Paul told the Corinthians in his second letter that he betrothed them to Christ as a pure virgin. Ephesians 5, we have similar language here as as in Colossians. Christ died to present the church to himself in splendor and beauty. And, And this bridal presentation is no mere metaphor. It anticipates what will happen as revealed in John 19 of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not John 19, Revelation 19. Well, what's the significance of this word present in this context here in Colossians 1? You, you and I were alienated from God. You, you and I were hostile to God, and we showed it by the way we lived. My friends, it would make a, a great story if one converted an enemy into a friend, would it not? We've likely heard stories like that. More than that, it would make a remarkable story if one had so transformed an enemy that they were adopted into the family. But who has ever heard of a man in power and authority who has gone to a far-off country to die and sacrifice himself to save one who has been his enemy and who continues to be his enemy, who hates him and is hostile to him, continuing in acts of treachery and only to bring them and restore them to himself and to make them his bride. Only Christ has done such a thing. And he's done that for you if you have put your faith in Christ. 
Well, in a way that only the Holy Spirit can inspire a man to do, Paul describes this bridal presentation using three key concepts from temple worship, the system of temple worship and sacrifice. You can see it there first. He draws you near. Notice that first description of the bridal presentation. It's the word holy, to present us before him holy. We often think of holiness in terms of moral purity, but that's not its fundamental meaning. Primarily, holiness refers to separation. It's the idea of reserving for a special purpose, distinguishing between that which is common and that which is uncommon. And in the context of the sacrificial system, it means to take an object or an animal or a person from among that which is common and to reserve it for a special purpose, namely worship. So when the Bible refers to the holy place or the holy assembly or the Sabbath day was to be kept holy or that the priests were to wear holy garments or that anything that touched the altar was holy, it meant that those places, people, things, utensils, clothing, everything else was reserved for a sacred purpose. They were to be reserved for worship. And as such, they were separated from everything which was unholy or common. There was a purification process for making things holy, but that was just the means, not the end of holiness. To be holy is to be reserved for God. So consider what it means for Christ to present you holy before him. Before his grace transformed you, you were far from God, alienated and separated from him. But now you've been brought near to him so that you could be separated from all the corruption that once was precious to you and now you're precious to him. You were separated so that instead of being hostile to him, you now worship him and glorify him and live for him. In Ephesians 2, after noting that we were separated from God, And God's people, Paul went on to write this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he he went on to say, he came and preached peace to you who are far away, peace to those who were near, that is the Israelites, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household." That's the reality that Christ has accomplished. You are one with the people of God. You are one with Christ. And you have immediate and direct access to God. But that reality is only a foretaste of what will be one day. One day on the new earth, John tells us in 21, we will hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Though God has brought us near now, we live by faith and not by sight. One day we will see Christ as he is. He will be with us, and we will be with him. But that's really only the beginning of what Christ has done. Look at the second word Paul uses to describe this transformation. Notice the word blameless. 
We must understand this in the context of the sacrificial system because the idea here is not moral uprightness or innocence. That's the third description. Here, the word refers to who you are, your nature. If you were to offer a sacrifice to God in Israel, you were to bring an animal that was without blemish. It had to be intact, complete, without defect. You couldn't bring a lame or uh, injured animal, one that was crippled. You were to bring one that it was as perfect as this sin-cursed world could produce and sacrifice that to God. It didn't matter how the lamb behaved. What mattered was, is it whole? Is it complete? Does it have any natural defects? Before Christ, you and I were hostile in mind. And that hostility rose out of the abundance of the heart. And the heart is not something that can be changed by an individual. We can't just perform heart surgery on ourselves and change our disposition toward God, especially when God is the very object of our hostility. We were dead and blind, lovers of darkness. We were enslaved to sin. We were broken, defective. We were spotted and maimed and completely incapable in participating in the worship of God. But Christ in his grace made us blameless, spotless, undefiled. He completely changed our heart and gave us a new life. He made us lovers of light and freed us from the power of sin. In chapter 2, Paul says that God made us alive and he defeated the powers, the dark powers that had held us and kept us happily entombed in darkness. In Colossians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 4, we read, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The one who created light, shined light in our hearts and it penetrated so deeply that Paul could write in Ephesians 5 that we are light. God has not only taken away our blindness and our love for darkness, but he has made us his light and he shines his light through us. So you are not who you once were, but neither are you who you will be. Beloved, First John says, we are not, excuse me, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. Though you were once hostile in mind, and now you are a creature in Christ, a new creature in Christ, that day will come when you are fully blameless when you will stand before God, not in a sin-cursed body that you have now, but in a new body, a glorified body. And the sinful nature that we battle will be completely done away with. But that's not all. Not only is the purpose of Christ's work to reconcile us to himself who were his enemies, not only is it to, to change our nature and give us life, He died for you that you might live for him. 
Notice the third word there in this description. It is the, the phrase beyond reproach. Know this, brothers and sisters, that when Christ died for you, his interest didn't stop. Christ died again so that you might live for him. 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Your new life in Christ must and will manifest itself in changed thoughts and words and deeds. It must, for every good tree bears good fruit. Christ died not in the hope that we would bear good fruit, but to ensure that we bore good fruit. Does not Ephesians 2.10 say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them? And not only were you created for good works, but God himself ensures that we walk in them. For elsewhere, Paul writes, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will, that is to give you the desire, and to work, that is to give you the ability for his pleasure. And this working of God in you will one day be complete. Again, Paul writes in Philippians, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In Revelation 19, the white robes worn by the bride of Christ is, are described as the righteous acts of the saints. But it also says that these clothes were granted to them to wear. You see, we all once wore filthy rags, saturated with sin and wickedness and self-righteousness. We were covered with the interwoven threads of anger and malice and slander and immorality and lying and stealing and coveting and envy and all kinds of wickedness. But at the cross, with his blood, Christ broke that central knot that held all these threads together. And throughout this life, he enables his people to take out each thread and replace them with righteous deeds. And one day we will stand before him fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ in beauty and splendor. If you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, this is the work of Christ in your life. Remember that you were alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Remember that the sovereign creator and the sustainer of the all took upon himself a body to, and died to reconcile you to himself. Remember that he did this not simply to be at peace, but to generate a deep and abiding love between you and him that he might give you new life and cause you to walk in his ways. Therefore, in light of these three defining realities, persevere in light of Christ's work of reconciliation. Look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, 
which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. I don't know how that if strikes you, if that gives you cause for concern. Know that Paul was not at all concerned about the spiritual condition of the Colossian church. He had already told them in chapter 1 that he rejoiced knowing their, the, the, hearing the, the report of their fruitful and growing faith. He later tells them in chapter uh, 2 that he, he rejoices knowing their good order and the firmness of their faith. So the if here is not an admonition or a warning. It's not like the Galatian church that he was actually concerned about. He certainly isn't telling them that, that, that they must work to earn God's work of reconciliation. And somehow, if they don't work hard enough, they can undo this work that God has accomplished. Instead, this is an encouragement to them. What he's saying is, God has reconciled you if you are being steadfast, if you are persevering in the faith, and you are persevering, therefore we can be confident that God has reconciled you. In fact, the the grammatical construction of these verbs, you could roughly translate this way, if you are continuing in the faith, having been established, you are steadfast and not being shifted away from the hope of the gospel. Paul is affirming that those things are true of the Colossian church, and they are true of all believers. For to not be steadfast, to be moving away from the hope of the gospel, is by definition being an apostate, not one for whom Christ died and reconciled to himself. So the if here is not a warning, but an encouragement. These things are true of you. Let them keep being true of you. It's like what he said to the Thessalonians. You're doing well, excel still more. Persevere in the faith and don't be distracted or disoriented by the people or circumstances that would tempt you to move away from the hope of the gospel of grace. In light of all that Christ has accomplished for you and in you and will complete in you, keep on persevering in love and worship, bearing fruit to the glory of God. So remember, remember that you were alienated and Christ brought you near. Remember that you were hostile in mind and God made you a new creation. Remember that you expressed your hostility in evil deeds and God is sanctifying you to live for him. And all of this is accomplished by his death on the cross that we might persevere. So as we close, I want to offer three implications of this passage. We could come up with hundreds and in a sense the whole New Testament is Uh, an exploration of the many implications of Christ's death and work of reconciliation. But let me just offer three. First, if you are not a Christian, before you can remember, you have to believe. If by the grace of God, your eyes are opening to the light of your need for reconciliation, don't close your eyes to the light. Don't run away back into the darkness. Press further into the light. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who died and gave himself to reconcile sinners like you, no matter what you've done. 
to himself. Stop trying to live as the captain of your soul and submit your life to Christ who loved you and gave his life for you. Believe. Second, if you're a Christian, remembering the necessity, the act, and the purpose of Christ's work of reconciliation requires intentional effort. We must remind ourselves by exposing ourselves to Scripture on a regular basis, daily. We remind ourselves by being actively engaged with the corporate worship of the body of Christ. We remind ourselves by listening to the Word as it is taught through not only the worship service, but growing disciples' classes, through GBI, through small groups, through the women's conference, men's retreat, men's breakfast, women's breakfast, all over the church, the Word of God, these reminders are being spoken, and we must expose ourselves to those opportunities to remember. We must remind ourselves by speaking these truths to our spouse and our children and our friends whenever we have opportunity. We must remind ourselves by listening to and singing gospel-centered songs all throughout the week, not just on Sundays. We must be intentional in remembering. And then third, let this remembrance of these realities draw you into higher worship. We must never remember for the sake of remembering. We must remember to give greater praise and glory and honor to Christ. We we must remember so that our lives can manifest these realities as we move from one degree of glory to another, being conformed to the image of Christ. And as we do that, we worship, we reflect his glory to him and to those around us. So believe Remember and worship. Let's pray. Our great God, what a remarkable work. There is no one like you. There is no one who has done what you have done because there is no one who could do what you have done. And you yourself were not obligated There is no higher standard. There's no one compelling you to reconcile us. No one outside of the Godhead compelled Christ to give his life. It was out of your own character of love and grace and compassion and mercy that you have accomplished redemption and reconciliation. It is out of that love relationship with those whom you have reconciled, that you give us your spirit and empower us to live for you. God, let us be a people who put on display what you have done. Let us not be like the world, like those who are still hostile to you, who still are in rebellion against you, who think in that way, who make decisions in that way, who have priorities in that way. Cause us to live for the glory of Christ because you alone are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And Lord, as we come to the table, prepare our hearts 
as we have remembered this morning, prepare our hearts to worship you and to examine ourselves, to repent of any sin that remains. In Christ's name, amen.